Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. How did you like those songs of praise this morning? And how appropriate they were. Did you notice the verses that our brother Gilson read to us? We're pretty much back in the Psalms. This is the very first Psalm ever written. A Psalm is simply a song, a song of worship and praise to the Lord God. And this, Exodus 15, the Song of Israel, is the very first Psalm in the Bible. In the book of Psalms, we know that Moses wrote the first one, Psalm 90, the oldest of the Psalms. That was written after Exodus 15. Forty years after Exodus 15, Moses would write another psalm as well. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. So Moses actually authored three psalms, and this is the very first one, recounting the victory of the Lord over the armies of Egypt and Pharaoh. So it's so appropriate, the music that our brother Paul picked this morning, songs of praise to the Lord God, because that's what this psalm is about. We're now in part six of the, the last part of Moses' life. The last 40 years of his life, he finally answers the call of God, and this is part six of that. The title of today's message is, The Lord is Highly Exalted. The Lord is Highly Exalted. And you probably can see how this title comes out of the verses that our brother Gilson read for us. We need to understand the larger context of this passage. The messages that we've chosen to preach on the life of Moses focus primarily on things that Moses does, and things that Moses says. Now, we know that this is really a story about the Lord God and how he used the man Moses. Moses is not the main character in the character study of Moses. It's the Lord and how the Lord worked in the life of Moses to prepare him and then to call him and then to use him for his glory. But there is a larger context to this song that they sang in Exodus chapter 15. And the larger context goes back to the passage that our brother David so eloquently preached to us from Exodus chapter 11. We're going to be skipping some key chapters simply because it doesn't really deal that much with the life of Moses, things Moses said and did. In chapter 11, it says, the Lord gave the people favor or grace. And the reason for that is so that they would understand and that Egypt and Pharaoh would understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. There was going to be one more plague, and that would be in chapter 12, the chapter after the one David preached last week, and that would be the death of the firstborn and the Passover lamb and the blood of the Passover lamb that would protect anyone who 
applied the blood to the doorposts and the lentil over the door so that the destroying angel would pass over that house and not slay the firstborn. This is the context of it. Chapter 13, they're, 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 uh, and 14, they're told to leave and they go out. But something very interesting happens in chapter 14. And you're going to see how this even comes into play in some of the verses today. The Lord tells Moses, after he had guided them out of Egypt, turn back a little, make camp at Pi Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. And when Pharaoh sees that you are trapped there, then he will want to come get you. And then I will harden his heart, and he will bring glory through the destruction of Pharaoh in Egypt. The larger context is the Lord is making a distinction. He made a distinction with the blood of the Passover lamb. He, he made a distinction in the parting of the Red Sea and allowing Israel to pass through safely, but then destroying Pharaoh and his army in the waters of the Red Sea. This is the distinction. And then we have chapter 15 with the song praising the Lord God for making that distinction, treating Israel differently than he treated Pharaoh and Egypt. And in that psalm, we'll also see why. What is this passage really all about? Instead of citing a verse or two to show you what this passage is about, 11 times the covenant name of God, Yahweh, 10 times Yahweh, once in shortened form, Yah, is mentioned in this passage, 11 times in 18 verses. The covenant name of God, the Lord in all capitals, or Yahweh, is mentioned. The Lord is referred to in 14 of the 18 verses. Only four verses don't mention the Lord. In these 18 verses, 48 times the Lord is referenced, either by his covenant name or as Adonai, Sovereign Lord, or as you, or as he, or his, or him, with a pronoun. 48 times. There is no doubt that this song, this psalm, these 18 verses are about the Lord. There's nothing else in this song, in these 18 verses, that is referenced anywhere near 48 times. It is all about the Lord. In it, the Lord is revealed as the all-powerful deliverer of his people. The song sings of the deliverance of them in the waters of the Red Sea that made a distinction, a parting between Israel and the armies of Egypt and Pharaoh. If you take only one thing away from today's message, the Lord is your deliverer who is worthy of your worship, and he will bring you to your final home. Take that away. Just as the Lord was the deliverer of Egypt, he is your deliverer. He is your redeemer as well. We sang about it on the cross. Jesus went to the cross bearing our sins. 
He provided salvation for, for, for us. He provided deliverance from the bondage to sin and an eternity separated from God and Christ. And the Lord will bring you to your final home just as they sang in this song in Exodus 15 that the Lord would bring them to his holy habitation. These 18 verses are divided into four stanzas. This song has four stanzas. The first one sings about the Lord being praised in the first five verses. And then in verses 6 to 10, the Lord should be praised for his righteous judgment. That's something we don't often praise him for, but it's something they sang about. And then the Lord should be praised for his incomparable greatness. And then lastly, the Lord should be praised for his guidance and plan. Now, I've broken it into four stanzas, this song. Here at Grace Gospel Church, we try to preach very carefully what is in the passage, the message that the original author wrote and intended as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when we break the message up into two points or three points or four points or five points or whatever, this isn't arbitrary. The preachers up here, we don't decide, oh, I, I want three points today or, oh, no, I want four. No, there's a reason for it. It's driven by the text. Let me show you this so I give you some confidence that the way this is broken up is correct. The first three stanzas all end in the same way, with the same idea. They went down into the depths, Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt. They went down into the depths like a stone, in verse 5. They sank like lead in the mighty waters, in verse 10, and then the earth swallowed them. In other words, the grave. So they went down even further, is the idea. They were buried there at the bottom of the sea. This idea ends the first three stanzas, and of course the remaining verses, 13 to 18, then must comprise the fourth stanza. But this is the repeated idea that indicates the end of each one of the stanzas. Uh, perhaps a little different than the songs we sing on Sunday mornings, these stanzas, some of them are longer, some of them are shorter, but this is a key thing that you notice when you read through this song that indicates the end of each stanza. We don't make it up here as preachers. The Holy Spirit inspired this wording through the pen of Moses. So let's look at the very first stanza. The Lord should be praised. Now this is a no-brainer for us as believers in Christ. Of course the Lord should be praised. But I gotta ask you, and maybe it's me projecting myself on you. When the day is not going well, how often do we praise the Lord? But still, even in those times, he ought to be praised. It's not optional. It's something we should always be doing. Praising the Lord is an act of the will. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will. Didn't say, I feel like it. Of course, they did feel like it. They were just delivered from Israel. They were 
defended by the Lord against an army that would have killed many of them and perhaps dragged some of them back to Egypt to be slaves for the rest of their life. So they wanted to sing, but that's not what they say. I feel like singing. Or I'm happy, so I'm going to sing. No, this is a conscious choice, a conscious decision. I will sing to the Lord. They were not going to forget for one moment what the Lord had just done for them in delivering them, redeeming them, purchasing, bringing them out of Egypt, and then allowing them to pass through the Red Sea unharmed and destroying their enemies. Praising the Lord is always an act of the will. No matter what our circumstances in life, we choose to. We don't have to have the best circumstances on a given day in order to praise the Lord. There's a reason why we don't just focus on circumstances, why we don't just grumble and complain. Besides, Philippians, in, in writing to the Philippians, Paul says, that it's sinful to grumble and complain. He gives a command, do all things without grumbling and complaining. But when we focus on these negative things, more often than not, if you're at all like me, it's going to bring you down. Instead, you want to be uplifted? I will sing to the Lord. Praising the Lord is always an act of the will. And it becomes even more important when we just haven't had that great victory, that great deliverance, like Israel just had. It becomes even more important. The times that we least feel like singing praise to the Lord is when we ought to. We should praise the Lord for what he has done. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Okay, well, that's what he is. But why is he exalted up there? The horse and the rider he has hurled into the sea. What did he do? He hurled the horse and the rider into the sea. He destroyed the armies of Pharaoh. Now, I want to teach you something as a little aside here because it comes into a play with even the hardening of Pharaoh's heart it comes into play when you read a lot of Hebrew poetry in the Psalms or anywhere else that it's found. In the prophets, there's a lot of Hebrew poetry, believe it or not. Even in Genesis, there's a few small spots. And this is poetry in Exodus 15. Did the Lord hurl the horse and its rider into the sea? Surely, we don't read the hand of God came down, started picking them up and tossing them into the sea. Instead, what we actually do read is he parted the sea, and when they were in the middle of it, then he caused that wind to cease, and the waters came back down upon them. He didn't hurl them into the sea. He hurled the sea on them. This is poetry. It's it's figurative language. It's not always to be taken precisely literal. It describes literal events in picturesque language. Emily Dickinson, there is no frigate like a book. A frigate is a sailing ship. 
What's she talking about? There is no frigate like a book. How can a book? You're going to sit on a book and sail across the Atlantic to Europe? What is Emily Dickinson talking about? There is no frigate like a book to take us worlds away. Children love to read books, and they get carried away into other lands, whether it be magical or another time or place. It's figurative language in poetry. What the Hebrews thought, and they thought correctly in a sense, was that everything that happens is attributed to the Lord. He is the one who is responsible for everything. They pictured the Lord as the direct or immediate cause of everything that happens. But in point of fact, he wasn't the direct or immediate cause of the drowning. The water was the cause of the drowning. The Lord just used the water. So there was this other layer between the Lord and Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt, and that was the waters of the sea. But they always picture the Lord as being the one who is immediately acting to bring something about. He hurled them into the sea. Well, his hand didn't come down and pick up Pharaoh and his chariots and toss them. Instead, he hurled the sea on them. But the Lord is praised for what he has done. What has he done for you? What has he done for you today and in your life? Do you praise him for that? Do I praise him for that? Do I remember and praise him again and again for the salvation he has provided in Jesus Christ? Praise the Lord for who he is to you. Now, it's not very often that I talk about the to you part, but here it comes out pretty powerfully in verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and as a result, I'll praise him. My Father's God, a God who can be commended to generation after generation. My Father's God, and I will extol him. My strength, my song, my salvation, my God, my Father's God. Who is the Lord to you? Think about how he has worked in your life over all the years, even if it's just months or weeks that you've known him. Who is he to you? See your Father, your loving Heavenly Father, Is Christ your Savior, your Lord, your Redeemer, your Passover Lamb who protected you and will protect you from eternal death? You should praise the Lord for what he's done and for what he is to you. You should praise the Lord for who he is, totally apart from anything that he's done any blessing that he has given to you or I, we should praise the Lord for who he is. The Lord is a warrior. He fought for them. He fought for you and I who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. The Lord is pictured as a conquering ruler general in Ephesians who leads captivity captive. 
He is a warrior. The Lord did battle at the cross, so to speak. Not battle against Satan, nothing like that. But he did, he engaged in a real spiritual struggle. Even within himself, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The culmination of that struggle that he recognized in Gethsemane when he said, Father, if it's be possible, let this cup pass away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And as a warrior, with his face set like flint, he went to the cross, bore the sins of the world in his body, and paid the penalty, underwent the wrath and judgment of his holy father so that you and I would never have to experience that judgment. He is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And when it says the Lord is his name, it means more than, okay, his name is Yahweh. Name has to do with reputation. Reputation. We know this even in English. Oh, so-and-so has a good name. Does that mean his name is good? What does it mean he has a good name? He has a good reputation, something to be proud of, something noble, something honorable. The same, it's one's reputation. You know, I doubt that any police officer ever said this to a fleeing bank robber. Stop in the name of law and order. Well, you don't expect to see Mr. Law and Mrs. Order walking down the street. What does it mean, stop in the name of? It's what law and order stands for. There's a certain meaning, a certain reputation to law and order. The same thing with the Lord. The Lord is his name. And here it's the covenant name of God. He was in a covenant relationship with them. We talked about that the last time I preached, what a covenant was. It's a legal contract. And the marriage covenant or marriage contract is perhaps the best example of that, of the loving relationship that ought to exist between both parties in that legal contract, in that covenant. And Yahweh, the Lord in all capitals, an indication of that Hebrew name, that Hebrew word Yahweh, is what's indicated by Lord in all capitals. That's the covenant name. That's how he related to the Jews with that covenant name. But as believers in Christ, we're in a new covenant made in Christ's blood. We are also in a covenant and in covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and God his Father. Praise the Lord for his protect, protection and deliverance. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he is cast into the sea. And the choice, again, we get that same image of the Lord acting directly, casting them into the sea when, in point of fact, he casts the sea upon them. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he is cast into the sea and the choices of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. There, that ending phrase, that ending idea of going down to one's demise. Praise the Lord for his protection and his deliverance. For them, it was 
obvious. They saw it with their eyes. The army's coming. And then the sea needing to be parted so they could escape. You and I don't often see that kind of threat to our life, do we? Not in this country, not in this day and age. I can't help but think about the prophet Elisha. And one morning, he and his servant awaken, and they're surrounded by an army that seeks to take them. And the servant is very much afraid. And Elisha prays that the Lord would open the eyes of his servant. And the Lord answers that prayer, and the servant all of a sudden sees that between that surrounding army and them, between them, are an army of angels protecting them. You and I, we know from the Scriptures we're engaged in spiritual warfare. We know the enemy of man's souls would seek to do us harm. How do we not know that there are angels protecting us? We don't know that. We don't know how much protection and deliverance God gives us each and every day. The Scriptures tell us that angels are ministering spirits for the heirs of salvation. We should praise the Lord for his protection and deliverance. I guarantee you something. With an enemy like Satan, you saw what in the Scriptures, what he wanted to do to Job and what the Lord allowed him to do to Job, I don't know any real biblical reason why he would not do the same to us, every one of us who names the name of Christ, if God allowed it. God only allowed Satan to go so far in his testing of Job. The very fact that we're here this morning, we're in reasonable health, we're not suffering the tragedies of war or persecution, we're able to meet freely like this, we can sing loudly our songs of praise to the Lord. In some countries, in the former Soviet Union, they often couldn't sing because they couldn't make any noise. They needed to be quiet. The fact that we're here, can any of us deny that the Lord is protecting and delivering us. He is our protector. He is our deliverer every day. The very fact that we don't see that persecution, that we don't see the spiritual forces of wickedness in high places arrayed against us to do us harm is all testimony to his protection. And he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son when we trusted in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. The Lord should be praised, but he also should be praised for some very specific things. His righteous judgment in verses 6 to 10. The first thing we need to know is the Lord has the proper power to judge righteously. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. He has the power to judge. Just as he judged Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt, he has the power to judge anything that he wants to judge. 
He has the proper power to do that. And it's a majestic power. Even his voice in Gethsemane, the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, was enough to flatten the armed mob and the soldiers who came to arrest him. Twice in John's gospel, you'll read that. He says to them, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And they fall to the ground. They get up, and the same thing happens a second time. What happens to John in the book of Revelation? He hears a voice behind him. He's caught up on the Lord's day. And he hears a voice behind him, and he turns. It was a voice that roared like many waters, like the sound of a large volume of water rushing through something. He turns, and he beholds the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory, and he falls at his feet as a dead man. He is majestic in power, and the Lord has to raise him up. The Lord has the proper power to judge righteously. He has the proper character to judge righteously. And in the greatness of your excellence, oh, the Lord is truly excellent. You've heard that phrase, that something is excellent. That's describing a quality to it that's good, that's right, that's desirable, that's proper. The Lord has the proper character an excellent greatness. He overthrows those who rise up against him. He only, Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt didn't simply rise up against God's people. In rising up against the Jews, rising up against God's people, they rose up against God himself. Brothers and sisters, if, if there's anyone who harasses you, who persecutes you, know this. They are not primarily your enemy. They are the Lord God's enemy. They are making the Lord their enemy. And it's his long-suffering that allows them to continue before that day of destruction that he's planned for them. He, you will be vindicated at that final day, sometimes before, the Lord says enough and judges a sinner. The Lord has the proper character. His burning anger can consume them like chaff. To think about that, chaff is just like straw. It's what's left over after the grain is winnowed, and it's dry. There's no moisture in it. It combusts very easily. It goes up in flames very easily. Which one of us with our anger could kindle chaff? None of us could. But the Lord's anger is so hot that here he's pictured as consuming chaff. That's how hot his anger is. We never need to fight our own battles. The Lord is our shield, our defender. He will fight our battles for us. The Lord has the sovereign power to judge righteously by any means whatsoever. Here it's the, at the blast of your nostrils, the air coming out of your nose, blowing as hard as you could out of your nose, the waters were piled up. Which one of us could ever do such a thing? 
The flowing water stood up like a heap. The deeps were hardened in the heart of the sea. It was as if they became a foundation when that wind blew, being pictured as a blast. The Lord caused a wind, a strong wind to come, and it parted the waters. Here, that strong wind is pictured all night long as the Lord, one long exhalation, one long blast from his nostrils, causing the waters to rise up and part so that Israel could go through. He has the sovereign power to judge righteously by any means. You know, we could think uh, of, oh, a whole bunch of different ways. We might want the Lord to act and do something. Whoever would have thought that he would do it with what's pictured here as a blast of his nostrils? If there's anything softer than water, it's air. And yet he uses the air to part the water and to even cause it to become congealed or hardened, so to speak, the depths of it in the heart of the sea. He has the power to judge by any means, and he was going to use these as waters of judgment on Pharaoh. That was the means that he chose. Whoever would have thought that, after all those people, the Israelites passed through, that he would now judge Pharaoh and the armies with that water. The same water that delivered them was going to judge the armies of Egypt and Pharaoh. He can use any means whatsoever. If I wrote this story, it probably wouldn't be water. Maybe it was lightning out of the sky or something like that, but I never would have thought of water. God can use any means whatsoever to provide deliverance for you and to judge those that are his enemies. The Lord will righteously judge those who persecute his people. He does care, and he will judge one day. The enemy makes all these claims. You know what this reminds me of? If you've ever read Isaiah 14, and the I wills of Satan that led to his fall. Five I wills, again and again, he says, I will, I will, I will, until he says, I will be like the Most High. Who do you think is behind Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt? The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My, my desire will be against them. I will draw out the sword my hand will destroy them. They sound just like Satan. The same spirit is energizing them in their hatred of the Jews and going after the people of God. The Lord's righteous judgment is certain and final. It's, it's against his enemies, as we saw in the previous slide, and it's certain and final. They sing of the Lord, you blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. The judgment of the Lord is certain and final. When he judges, that's the end of it. What chance does someone with lead ankle weights have of swimming up to the surface? None whatsoever. 
His judgment is certain and final. There is coming a day that he will judge. The scriptures are very clear. Paul, in speaking to the philosophers at the Areopagus on Mars Hill in Athens, he said, God is declaring to all men everywhere that they need to repent. Why? Because he's fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through the man he has appointed, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. He has fixed the day already that he will judge the world in through Jesus Christ. And that judgment will be certain and final. It's appointed unto men to die once and after this the judgment, not the second chance. There is no second chance. It is a judgment. And that judgment takes place, according to the book of Revelation, before a great white throne. The only ones who stand before that throne, according to the chronology in Revelation, are those who have never trusted Jesus Christ and his completed work of salvation on the cross. And the books will be checked, and their name will not be found in the book of life, and they will be cast into the lake of fire. That's what it says in the book of Revelation. And they will be there for all eternity. God's judgment is certain. It's coming. There's a rendezvous with destiny that everyone has. The rendezvous of the believers to be taken home to be with God and Christ for all eternity. The rendezvous of the one who rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ, the salvation of Jesus Christ on the cross is a judgment throne, a great white throne. That's certain, and it's final. There is no second chance. If you're here this morning and you've never placed your trust in what Christ did on the cross, not Christ and something else, not Christ and your good works. The Scripture says he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. It's not Christ and your works, Christ and your money, Christ and your prayers, Christ and your church attendance, not even your attendance at Grace Gospel Church. It's Christ and Christ alone. He alone provided salvation. He said, it is finished. You could translate that, it has been completed. The work of salvation is complete. It's finished, a painting that's finished. When the artist says it is finished, what needs to be done? How many more brush, brush strokes to a finished painting? None. None. We don't get a brush and, 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 and uh, oh, oh, I think you need a little color over here. No. We don't get to do that. We don't get to change someone else's painting. We don't get to add anything when it's finished. Christ said the work of salvation on the cross when he hung there at the sixth hour before he yielded up his spirit, he said, it is finished. There's nothing you and I can add to it, nothing at all. Add anything to it, 
and you destroy that painting. Salvation's found only in him. Trust in him. Place your faith and trust in what Christ did on the cross. You'll never regret it, and you'll avoid that certain and final judgment that the Lord himself will bring upon those who have rejected him. The Lord should be praised for his incomparable greatness. Praise the Lord because he stands above all others, who is like unto thee, O Lord, amongst the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. The Lord stands alone. There's a little chorus. I wish I could sing it for you to this verse. It's sung through a couple times. It's so beautiful, but it fixes the words of this verse in your mind. Who is like the Lord amongst the gods? There is no one like him. There is no God in heaven and earth like the Lord. Why? Because there is no other God in heaven or earth. There are only lifeless idols. They have no eyes to watch over you. They have no ears to hear your prayers. They have no mouth to speak guidance and comfort to you. There is only one true God in heaven and earth, and that is the Lord God, revealed in his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is like him? Majestic in holiness. Have you ever thought about that? His holiness is so majestic, so awesome that it struck John the Apostle down like a dead man. That's what we're going to see one day. And he's going to raise us up just like he had to do with John. That glory would destroy us in our sinful state. But the scripture says, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Hallelujah. What a day. Sin will be gone. It'll be eradicated. And we'll be like our Lord, able to worship him continuously with, a more, with more perfect words, with a nobler heart. Praise the Lord because he stands alone. There's nothing else that compares to him. He's in a class by himself. Praise the Lord because he can do what no one else can do. He stretched out his right hand and the earth swallowed them. Look, if I want the earth to swallow, I got to use a shovel or a bobcat. Here, he just stretches out his hand and they're going to end up going down to the grave. The Lord can do what no one else can do. This is what's pictured here. He merely stretches out his hand. I mean, not, not a whole lot of things I can do stretching out my hand. A little exercise, maybe. I could use that. But nothing happens if I just stretch out my hand. Look, I go like this. People don't even stop. The Lord stretches out his hand, and the earth opens and swallows them up. The Lord should be praised, lastly, for his guidance and plan. See, there was more 
to the Lord than just what He did in delivering them, because they're singing now after Pharaoh had been destroyed in the, in the Red Sea with his army. It's more than just the future judgment. He has a much larger guidance and plan that they're now going to praise him for in the closing verses of this psalm, of this song. Praise the Lord for his unending guidance. In your loving kindness, that's a very special word in the Old Testament. Okay, I don't usually tell you what the Hebrew or Greek words are, but I, I want to tell you this one because some of you have heard it, and I want you to know that this is that word, chesed. Chesed. It is very difficult to translate. If some of you are Portuguese, if you read in your Portuguese Bible, they actually, every time chesed is used, they use one or the other of two Portuguese words. Benevolencia, excuse my pronunciation, and misericordia. If you're Portuguese and you know those, those are the ideas behind loving kindness. One Portuguese word, one English word doesn't do it. If I were to translate this to bring out the fullness of meaning of the Hebrew chesed, I would say God's covenantal, because it's only found in a covenant from the greater to the lesser. God's covenantal, merciful, loving kindness. Covenantal, merciful, loving kindness. And that's the way I would translate it. It's what's shown by the greater God to mankind who have entered into his covenant. In your loving kindness, in your covenantal, merciful love, you have led the people whom you have redeemed, who you have purchased for yourself, whom you have redeemed in your strength, you have guided them where? To your holy habitation. He was going to be taking them to Mount Sinai where he would descend and then he would take them to eventually into the land of Canaan and Jerusalem, Mount Zion, with the city where God had chosen to cause his name to dwell. Praise the Lord for his unending guidance. He was going to guide them for 40 years in the wilderness and finally bring them to the promised land. The Lord guides every one of his children. He guides you and I through his word. And he will safely bring us one day to that heavenly shore. He will guide us unmistakably without losing any and take us to be with himself, to his holy habitation. Praise the Lord for his plan for the wicked. This is sad, but it's still something that the Lord should be praised for. If God did not have a plan for the wicked, he would not be a holy God. He would not be a just God. If he weren't holy, he could change his mind at any time and go back on every one of the promises he made you or I. But because he is a holy God, 
He can't go back on his word. Everything he promised, he will do. And so even his plan for the wicked is something we can praise him for because it demonstrates his holiness and it lets us know that he will never change his mind regarding those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Again, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, this same terror and dread, this same anguish and trembling and dismay will one day be yours when you stand before Christ in judgment. Before it's too late, trust in him. Cry out to him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, just like that tax collector in Luke 18 did. God, be merciful. I deserve your judgment. I am a sinner. I am a rebel against you. Save me. The scripture says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Praise the Lord for his power to carry out his redemptive plan. By the greatness of your arm, the enemies are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased or redeemed. The Lord has the power to carry out his redemptive plan just as he would stop the enemies from attacking them until they were strong enough to possess the land. They were motionless as stone. They could not come against Israel. And he brought them over into the promised land. The Lord has the power to carry out his plan. The scripture, Peter says that, that, that our salvation is kept for us, reserved for us. It's never going to be lost. God is keeping it safe. Praise the Lord for his future plans for you. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is. To the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. This is what he was going to do for the Israelites, for the believer in Christ. What did Jesus Christ say? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. The Lord has prepared a place for everyone who trusts in him. God has future plans for you to give you future, a future and a hope. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The world has a dead hope. 
Everything they trust in is dead. It has no life. It will always let them down. In the end, it will let them down. But the believer in Christ has been born again to a living hope through Christ's resurrection. Because he has conquered death, the believer in Christ will as well. Praise the Lord for his eternal plan that brings him glory. This is the ultimate purpose of God's plan. You and I are not the primary purpose of God's plan. God's primary purpose is to bring himself glory. But our greatest good is always found in his greatest glory. How is he able to do this? I don't know. But he does it. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's sovereign and able to bring about whatever he chooses to do. And his plan will bring him glory. He will reign forever and ever. There'll be no end to his kingly reign. And that will bring him glory when he sits on that throne and we bow before him and worship him and the reward crowns that he gives us, we cast at his feet and sing a song to him, worthy art thou, for you were slain And you did redeem by your blood people from every tribe, tongue, people, kindred, and nation. And he will reign forever. And we will serve and worship him forever. His plan is not just a temporary one. It's an eternal plan that will bring him glory. Today, let me challenge you with this. Will you begin to pray daily for a heart of true worship that praises the Lord as it should? The way they praise the Lord in Exodus 15. And will you begin to pray to have the Lord open your eyes to the many ways he deserves your worship each day? Pray these things to him and ask him to open your eyes so that you can give thanks for all the awesome things that he does in your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Oh, how we thank you that you are the mighty deliverer, Lord Jesus, that you have delivered us from the domain of darkness, that you have made us a child of God, not because of anything we've done, but because of what you did, going to the cross and bearing our sins. Thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thank you for saving us. Indeed, there is no one like you. Oh, God, you gave us your one and only son. You gave us your very best. Who's like you? There is no one like you. We thank you for revealing yourself to us, for revealing your beloved son to us giving us the gift of repentance and faith so that we might trust in him. We ask that you would help us to bring you honor and glory, to praise you always in every circumstance in life, in every coming day. We ask this for your glory and your name's sake. Amen.